we've set up, you know, what the Christian is in the world, as the soul is in the body giving life, even though sometimes the body rejects the soul, uh, as being that leaven in the bread, causing it to grow, as reflecting the divine light, you know, as we receive that life from the Lord. We can even benefit those who maybe have rejected God in this roundabout way, especially, again, those three things of you know, always witnessing the dignity of the person made in the image and likeness of God as you know, very much elevating uh, just the, the meaning and the purpose behind all different human actions. And so what I wanted to do is take sort of these typical uh, human virtues. You know, some of them are divine virtues, I, I grant that, but sort of typical human ways of expressing all different kinds of human actions. Virtues kind of can encompass all sorts of different actions in one, and that's why I think it's a good schema to look at how has the church changed the way we live in the world, even to this day, even, not just for Christians, but for everyone. And so we're going to follow the, the seven classical virtues. First, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. How do we relate differently to God now because of the church, because of the grace that builds on nature he's given us? And then sort of those more classic human virtues. Uh, they are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. We'll explain them each as they come up, what they sort of, what they sort of mean. So first, we'll dive into faith. How has the church changed the idea of faith? And of course, outside of the church, it's hard to think, does, does the world have a sort of natural faith? Well, when you think about it in this way, faith sort of determines your identity. Who do you put your faith in? Who do you entrust yourself to? That's sort of who you belong to, who you identify with. So those who identify with Rome, they are Romans. Those who identify with Christ, they are Christians. So how has the Christian faith, though, elevated this idea of, of trust, of identity? Uh, for each of these, I sort of use some part of the Bible, which is sort of the written word of God. But then I also include, you know, some stories of the saints. The saints really represent that word of God, which is written in the heart of the church. Now, Dave Arabum in Vatican II says that, that the word of God is principally written into the heart of the church, into that living tradition which the saints live out. So for the scriptures, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so trust is a hard thing, right? Uh, you need trust, though, in this world. We don't get very far without it. Uh, you think about everyone wants to say that they act only on reason, but we don't really reason out most things we do in this life. You know, you come into a building, you have trusted that the builder did their job and made it so it won't collapse. A lot of trust that that takes. You go out of the house without an umbrella, you're trusting that the weatherman did his job and checked that it wasn't going to rain. Yeah, you did your reasoning and you looked at the app and it said that, but you're actually trusting. You're not reasoning, you're trusting. But the problem with trust is that it can be, it can be placed in the wrong thing. It can be placed in the wrong person. And then what happens? We're led astray. 
there's always this fear in faith before the church that our trust is misplaced. That things we put our trust in, the societies we put our trust in, the rulers we put our trust in, they're misplaced. With Jesus, we don't have that. All of a sudden, you have this one trust that is sure. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the one thing. You put, if you have nothing else that you can trust, this is the one thing you can trust. And that changes everything. Uh, we see that with Peter and Paul. I want to talk a little bit about these two princes of the apostles. A nice little image here. You can imagine them embracing. Uh, this is kind of a tradition that Peter and Paul embraced in Rome before each, each one was led to their own martyrdom. Peter said this in one of his letters. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by the power of God are safeguarded through faith to a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the final time. So again, we looked at how is a people defined around this object of their mutual love. Faith secures us to that inheritance, which is enduring, which is unfading, which is kept for us in heaven, which can never be taken away. Uh, that changes you. That changes your attitude. Uh, when you've lived so long, humanity has lived so long, not knowing who to trust, not knowing what to trust. Uh, they try to trust the seasons, and then the seasons fail them. The crops fail. Uh, they try to trust different gods or goddesses who sort of make promises that if you follow me, you know, I will lead you to this sort of earthly paradise, and they've been failed. So there's this paradise in heaven, you know, secured through our faith in the resurrection, where Jesus is, he soon will be. And this transformed everything. For St. Peter and Paul, you know, think about them. Peter, who was a mere fisherman, uh, the fisherman, uh, they found his bones not too long ago, 1940s, digging out underneath the Vatican during World War II. Maybe to hide people. You know. And they found the bones of a man, 60 or so years old, fits about the right timeline, uh, whose bones were worn away through what seemed like years of hard work, the bones of the fishermen. Uh, they didn't find any feet bones, which is kind of funny. Peter being crucified upside down, they would have probably chopped him off the cross at the feet taking the body with them. They probably would have been afraid, you know, that they would be caught and taken as well. But again, this faith took a fisherman from Galilee who has no business coming to Rome and changing the world, who has no be business being remembered 2,000 years from now. And yet, because of that faith, he is attached to this inheritance, which is sure. He is the rock on which the church is built. And St. Paul as well going around, uh, going from someone who staunchly persecuted the church uh, to someone who became her greatest prophet, preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, when we go to the next slide, the other ways this faith transformed the world, uh, it transforms the way people worship. At the time that the church entered the world, the primary worship of the land was worship of the emperor. Not even worship of the gods. The emperor is God. The emperor provides everything for you. The emperor is the creator of this society. You know, man 
is the measure of all things. This man, Caesar, Caesar is Lord, is something that was you know, proclaimed each and every place in the kingdom. You sort of had to proclaim that, to be a true Roman, to be a part of this true earthly city. Again, they put as their object something less than God, doomed to fail. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. So Paul preaching Jesus Christ is Lord, it's a very political statement. No, it's, it's very much getting in to the heart of everything Rome's trying to preach. So St. Paul is taking his life into his hands every time he professes Jesus Christ is Lord. Whenever you see that in his letters. That's like a statement of treason. That's like a declaration of independence all in itself, all wrapped into one. He's declaring independence from Caesar as Lord and putting it all in faith, Jesus Christ. As well as what comes about through this is this transformation of worship. Worship in the Roman days was very much connected to passions, and it makes sense because passions are those you know, deep desires of us. You know, it's very easy to manipulate people through their passions. And so religion was used to sort of get people to do the right thing by appealing to their passions. Now, there was some pretty bad stuff going on, stuff having to do with prostitution in the temple, using prostitution to get people to worship the thing they wanted you to worship, to worship sex, or to worship, again, the emperor, uh, you know, other passions, you know, glory, greed, you know, manliness. You know, each of these gods had their own sort of passion attached to them. That's why when you hear the stories of the Greek gods, they're sort of terrible people in the eyes of a Christian, right? St. Paul talks about logical worship, worship of the word, worship with the intellect, worship that's on a deeper level than our passions. So the Christian faith really freed us from this kind of worship of these lesser things. You know, the Greek gods, you look at them, they all represent kind of a lesser desire, a lesser passion of man. Christian worship freed us from that. Worship the God of our intellect, the God that we can know on a more personal level, love on a more personal level, with our passions, but with our whole being. And then lastly, I think the thing that faith really did, it provided a place where all people could join in this common city, the city of God, right? You know, for, for Rome, you know, they put on everything, S-P-Q-R, for the Senate and the people of Rome. Everywhere in the empire, it's for Rome. Problem is, is not everywhere in the empire is Rome. So you're kind of I, surrendering your identity to something else. That's not you. But through the faith, all of a sudden, people can become fully themselves. You know, St. Paul says, again, neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So really, the church was, kind of in a sense, the first international organization that reached global status. You know, there's been different attempts at different treaties between nations, different empires have grown. But to have this sort of peace among people of so many different backgrounds, so many different languages, again, think of that letter to Diognetus, you know, seeing that Christians, they come from all these different places, and yet they are one. That's something that our global world is built on today, even though they don't really accept that and realize it. They're still working off of the virtues of the faith that made us one. Fortunately, they're no longer working off of that, which means that that can start to crumble beneath them unless we get back to our roots, our common identity. Next virtue is the virtue of, of hope. And hope, again, 
theological virtue, so you might say there was no hope before Christianity, but people put their hopes in different things, different destinies. What are we made for? And so, again, Jesus really redefines hope when he talks about his Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes through all these different ways in which we have a different kind of hope as Christians that can get through any sort of trial or persecution, right? Blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the, the saints, virgin martyrs, <laughs> really convinced the masses that the Christians truly had a different kind of hope. Uh, when they saw, you know, Tertullian, he's an early church writer, says the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. Uh, we've heard that before. People saw the martyrs. They saw that they have something, they have a, a destiny they believe in that's greater than anything else in their life. Greater than anything I have. It makes them think twice about what they think they're working towards. So those are like the four capital mar uh, virgin martyrs. I think it's like, it's, it's not the ones you usually think of. Like St. Catherine of Alexandria, St. Dorothy. I can't remember the other two, but you can also think of St. Agnes, St. Lucy, St. Cecilia. Those are some of the ones we think of more often. Who are so young that the shackles of the Romans didn't even fit around their hands. They would just fall off. And so they would willingly go with them to their death. Um, again, these humble few shaming the proud of the world, saying there's something else here. So the next slide sort of unpacks this. What did hope do for the world? It really freed us, again, from a sort of slavery that is still sort of present in the world today. This tyranny, uh, I say a revolution of paganism, but really it's tyranny in any age. Uh, you know, there's a critique that Christian hope is actually a bad thing. You know, you have your hope for heaven, it means you're going to ignore the problems of earth. You know, Karl Marx, in talking about communism, had this to say about religion. It was the uh, opium of the masses. You know, it's just like drugs that you take to try to get through life now. It's very much the opposite, right? Uh, tyranny <laughs> is very much built on this kind of attitude, that you have no hope for a future life, so you better just do what we say now so that you can have at least a little better of a life than these other people can give you. That's sort of this tyranny that happens when people don't have hope for something greater, something better. Uh, you look at all the different ways in which people holding on to a greater hope throughout history, uh, they're the ones that are trouble for the tyrants. The tyrants want you to believe that, again, there's, the, there's no hope for a life better. Uh, except on this earth. So do what we say here on this earth and you'll be fine. It's easier to manipulate people that have no hope, that have no awareness of their true destiny. And so Christianity has given that to the world, made it harder for tyrants to rule. Uh, you think about Christendom in medieval Europe. You know, it wasn't ruled by giant nations, giant tyrants who swayed people to do all these sorts of massive things. You know, it was a bunch of little bickering kingdoms, all right? Because people were too stubborn. They held on to this hope too dearly for anyone to get too big in those days of Christendom. Uh, it's because of hope. It's because of hope, that common destiny that convinces you to fight for things uh, even when, again, the tyrant tries to manipulate you. Just giving up, giving this is all that there is for you, so take the best you can and run with it. 
the church changed the world. Uh, now for love. And love again, identity, destiny, mission. Love convinces us of a new kind of mission here on this earth. Let's love one another as I have loved you, as Jesus would say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. And again, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. So we're going to see that one of the things Christianity and the church did is sort of change the definition of what love really is. Before we get to that, um, my epitome of love, I went right to the Blessed Mother, having, holding the heart of the church. Uh, she, uh, especially in history, we think about, uh, I think about these three apparitions of Mary. Mary continuing to care for the church through history uh, and very much love being present in those three apparitions. Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Fatima. Think about those three moments. I would have listed out more details, but it would have been too long. But, but what happened at those moments, right? Our Lady of Guadalupe, it's not just this little incident in Mexico. It, it takes place amidst one of the most drastic events in world history, the clashing of the old world with the new world. And what's going to happen with that? Well, we, we kind of know the tragedies that took place and, you know, caused by man, not caused by man, you know, diseases that were just kind of totally unforeseen as well, just adding to the whole mix. In comes Our Lady of Guadalupe and sort of bridges the gap, uh, gives, again, reminds the natives of their dignity right? Appearing as one of them. You know, it's, it's sort of said there's so many things in that image, that, that image given from heaven. One of the things I love is if you look at her hands, uh, her hands are actually two different colors. Well, one hand sort of looks a little more native tone, and then the other one is a little more, you don't know if it's almost on purpose, but it's a little paler. Almost looks a little paler. It's almost like she has the hands of the Spaniards, the hands of the natives, and are bringing them together. And you look at Mexico, look at Latin America, you look at South America, a bunch of tragedies and travesties happened. You know, we don't want to discredit that. You know, there are wicked people, even among the church's ranks, who did terrible things. Uh, but you look at the church in those places and the people there, and it's, it's the same people that lived, that passed on their culture, that culture still survives today within the church. Uh, you kind of look a little farther north, you know, hate to say it, but in America, in Canada, those cultures, you know, more or less shoved out, you know, destroyed. Where in the lands where the church had a part to play, they sort of wedded and melded together. And it's a beautiful thing. You look at their cultures, they're beautiful. So love sort of won out. Even though, again, there was tragedy, there was crosses. Uh, but that's just something I think about. Our Lady of Lords, go more into that. But that was, again, the time of the kind of enlightenment when everyone was, you know, convinced that reason is the only way, that faith has no, place, no part to play in our world. And she does Our Lady of Lords. Miraculous healings that no one can explain, you know, verified by doctors, you know, throughout the lands. Uh, so showing that there's something more to life than you can understand. Your human understanding. And then Our Lady of Fatima, a warning to a world again getting ready to destroy itself. Uh, 
it seems it just seems that you know in kind of the biggest moments of history mary appears pulling the earth back to love and again that gets us to our next slide how did this love transform the world well kind of the biggest way was christians really kind of redefined love um the word that you see for love in the new testament is this word agape and it's not a word that the Greeks, you know, this is the Greek language. When they said love, they usually used the word philos, you know, philosophy, love of wisdom. Or they used the word eros, you know, kind of like eros, you know, Cupid in the, the Roman mythology, kind of that, that attractive love. Or philos, love of friendship. Agape, uh, it was kind of this undefined love. Um, it's kind of hard to say what the Greeks actually thought it meant before Christianity came along. But, but they really took it and made it their own. And they made it, again, the love of God, an unconditional love, love that has no conditions, that pours itself out completely for the other, a love that gives itself to the other. And eros is kind of a love that kind of pulls the other person into you. You know, I'm going to take you for myself. In philosophy, or philos, it's kind of a love that you share between two things. But only agape is this love that can go to the cross. The other person isn't sharing that. It's a love that can totally give of oneself to another, even if the other does not return that love. So all these other loves are conditional loves. This unconditional love uh, really revealed, again, God is love. So the rise, well, rise of different loves then transforms, right? Charity, you know, the idea of a hospital, an orphanage, um, even in a sense of social security. I mentioned that, like taking care of the widow, the orphan, the alien in your land. It, it's an idea that goes back to, to the Jewish people. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, that's in the law of, of the first people of Israel. But it just really comes out on a worldwide scale uh, when you get to the church. You know, developing those, those structures of charity. You know, not just leaving people to fend for their own. Yes, they were charitable people all through the history of the world that cared for the sick and suffering, maybe among their own families. But to get these saints that care for people they have nothing to do with, get those Mother Teresas that go into the worst place they can and pick the, the maggots out of dying people. Uh, the reporter that saw this, one of the Sisters of Charity, Missionaries of Charity doing this, said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the sister said, neither would I. She just went back to doing it. She's not doing it for a million dollars. She's doing it out of this unconditional love. Sacred character of marriage as well. Um, before Christianity, you know, polygamy is, is sort of the norm among different cultures and societies. You know, to take all the wives you can, it's almost better in a sense because you have a more firm plan or tribe. If you have many more sons, you know, get the most sons you can. But there's also been actually just even historical and, you know, sociological studies on polygamy and warfare. In countries today that have more polygamy, there is still more warfare. Makes sense. You have all these men don't have a wife to uh, keep them straight, keep them from getting in trouble, right? You know, so we need to get the more one-to-one -one thing anyway, right? But also just that character of there's one God. Uh, polygamy and paganism multiple gods, multiple wives, they went hand in hand through history. 
monotheism, belief in one God, belief in one wife, they also grew together. Uh, there's something about that. Again, with marriage being a sacrament of Christ in the church, being a sacrament of, of God in a sense, uh, shows us what God is like. And so the one wife, one God, it, it really goes together. And that transformed marriage. Uh, so again, love changed the world. Uh, getting now into the human virtues. We're not going to have hot chocolate, are we? <laughs> Warm. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> Jesus said, be hot or cold, I'll spit you out. So I guess I can't take that. We'll push on. Yeah, we'll. This is better, you know. The truth. Hunger, for, hunger and thirst for the truth. Not for hot chocolate. Okay. The, the first of the human virtues, these cardinal virtues, they're called sometimes as well, kind of like the cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. They're sort of the main four by which everything else is measured and directed. Prudence. Prudence, which is right reason in action. Knowing the right thing to do and setting out to do it. So knowing the truth, and the truth will set you free, in other words, right, as Jesus said. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, I included also this scene from The Passion where Jesus tells Pilate, I, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, of course, says to him, what is truth? So there's, of course, this line throughout all of history searching for the truth. Uh, it gets tangled. Uh, I love G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite Christian authors. One of the books I recommend to you at the end is St. Francis of Assisi. He talks about uh, that saint and includes in this, you know, during St. Francis's age, he talks about paganism of old and how paganism was sort of a scientific trap that we fell into where we sort of believed in uh, the magic and the gods behind all these different things that we stopped studying them. It was only when all those pagan gods were debunked, we worshiped the one God who is the source of all these things, that we started to study these things again. We started to look at these things as part of his creation because there's this, you know, this cycle in sort of the people of Israel and then so also in the Christians. You know, the more you come to know God's creation, the more you can come to know him. You know, through his acts of creation, he reveals part of his heart. So we kind of turn back to studying these things again because of this quest for truth. St. Dominic, St. Thomas Aquinas were sort of my saints for this uh, because St. Dominic sort of started the, the order of preachers in order to preach the truth. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the more brilliant men of the Middle Ages, was a scholastic. Scholastic means to gather you know, all these things into one. Uh, truth is one, it's all from God. And so through that gathering and seeing different truths connected, it, it developed a whole different way of thinking about the world. Um, so that leads us to the next slide. How did this manifest in the world? Well, the church was very involved in the preser preservation of the truth. Uh, you talk about the fall of Rome, 
society came crashing down. That could have been the end of so much knowledge of the ancient world, except the church was convinced that every single bit of it, as part of God's history, as part of his creation, was good and was worth preserving. Now, maybe they did not preserve some things, but they preserved pagans, pagan writers. They, they preserved plenty of stuff that, you know, today people would probably cancel and like forget about it, destroy it, cast it out. But the church said, you know what, someday this might mean something. We want to preserve this. So monasteries would devote themselves to just copying down texts from the ancient world. They might not have even read and don't know how to read it. They knew it was important, important enough to preserve it. They became kind of these new schools, the monks did, uh, teaching these new people coming in to Europe, uh, passing on these skills, you know, sharing the knowledge with people that should have been their enemies as well. You know, that was another thing the church did. The invaders that destroyed them, they said, let's just make them our friends. Uh, let's share the gospel with these people. And that's what happened. The Franks, the French, the Germans, English, the Irish end up becoming Catholic instead of let's destroy them, right? Different attitude in the church. Teaching this truth, you know, universities, Oxford, Paris, Bologna, Salerno, I think those are like some of the first universities of the world. Where are they started? They're started next to cathedrals next to these cathedral schools uh, as places of universal learning, to learn about anything. Uh, and what is the one discipline that connects everything? It's theology, actually, is the main study. And every other piece of learning is sort of connected to that. Again, it's all about the object. You know, what's that one thing that holds all other learning together? It's God. If it's not God, what is it? Uh, in today's universities, it's sort of hard to say. They've kind of lost a common teaching. That's why everyone is so specialized, specialized to a point that we can't even communicate to each other. We don't have a common language anymore. The engineers, they're off doing their engineer thing. They can't speak to the communications, the communications major. They can't speak to, you know, whoever else, which is funny because they're communications, right? You're supposed to be able to speak to anyone. But uh, and the idea of the university was that everyone was surrounded around God. He is truth. Every other truth must come from him somehow, so at least that gives you some common truth to talk about. When you look at the universities, out of these universities came, you know, some of the most important discoveries of, of the history of science. You know, we talk about Copernicus, Polish priest, studying in the Jagiellonian University in Poland. Uh, even Galileo, you know, usually we think of Galileo, we think of the fight between him and the Pope. And it's true, there was a fight. And, you know, Galileo probably got, well, he kind of got what was coming to him, but, you know, probably shouldn't have gone down that way. At the same time, he grew up in these universities. His teachings were taught in these universities then by the Jesuits afterwards. They're the ones that took him up on, took him seriously on his teaching, you know? So the church was always that, kind of sponsor for the truth. You know, there was no one else going out and doing these things. It took kind of someone with that res dear respect for the truth that's out there uh, to keep pushing 
uh, great minds in this direction. Usually great minds would go into politics, you know, military, you know, something more practical where they can gain honor and fame. Uh, the arts, the sciences needed sponsors. They needed patrons, and the church really was that. Another kind of key thing to recognize is that uh, the Catholic schools actually have a big role to play in education for all in general. That uh, St. Benedict, or not St. Benedict, Pope Benedict actually said this about the American church. What's the best thing they got going? Or what, what's the, one of their greatest virtues? It's the Catholic schools. When immigrants kept coming to America and they were getting, you know, like de-Catholicized by the culture, you know, there came that, that awareness that we need to teach them the faith. So Catholic schools sprung up. We were teaching everyone, no matter who, how, who they were, where they were in the social status. And that caught on with the Protestant schools then. They started wanting to teach everyone. That caught on with America. It caught on with other countries. Uh, this idea that everyone should learn. You know, part of it for the Protestants and, and the Catholics, you know, word of God is reason enough that everyone should know how to read. You know, once that became available through the printing press, uh, again, Catholic schools in America sort of branched out universal education for everyone. Um, justice, we'll kind of go a little, little quicker through some of these last virtues. Um, that video, we won't play it, but it's the oldest, not the oldest video of someone, but that's Pope Leo XIII. He's the oldest person recorded on video, is Leo XIII. Fun fact. Why do I mention him? Um, he had a great deal to do with justice. Coming after the age of industrialization, um, wrote one of the most important documents from the church, speaking to the world, uh, influential documents as well. It really did have a great impact on what was going on in the social atmosphere around this time, where again, people were moving into city, cities you know, kind of submitting themselves to almost a new slavery. And then communism was on the other side trying to convince these people, see, you need to rise up against these, you know, and rechange everything. And in between there, you know, was the Pope trying to guide society through the double shipwrecks on either side, you know, through the strait. So what, is, what has changed? This one line right here, God said, let us make human beings in our own image after our own likeness. Probably saved more people. <laughs> in the history of the world than any other written line of literature. I don't know. That's kind of a big statement, bold statement. But um, that's something the church has continually said. Again, the dignity of the person, one of the ways the church can reteach the world you know, how to live. So next slide. Uh, a couple things I just wanted to point out. Um, the church has law as well, has a justice that she tries to live within her own members. Um, usually you don't have to know too much about canon law. Priests have to know a lot. But the one thing you do have to know about canon law is the very last canon. There's 1,752 canons. This is the very last one. It starts very boring, and then it gets really exciting. <laughs> In cases of transfer, the prescripts of canon 1747 are to be applied. Canonical equity is to be observed. I'm not sure what that all means, but I know what this means. This is the very last line of canon law, and it's that last line on purpose because it applies to everything else that's ever been said. This last line. That's kind of the idea of writing the law. Last line applies to everything else that comes before it. The salvation of souls. 
which must always be the supreme law in the church, is to be kept before one's eyes. So what is the supreme law of the church? Salvation of souls. And that's this idea of, again, divine justice. Um, uh, just to mention there, the idea of justice of rights and of conscience, you know, that we have that voice of conscience within us, telling us right and wrong and that has to be defended uh, is, again, something that comes out of the Christian you know, deposit of faith. The dignity of human persons, the call to family, community participation. Again, the church helps mend the seams of human society, enable us to live together on all sorts of levels. Um, we could explain on, with more time all of these things, but we better go on to fortitude. One of my favorite lines, Jesus, Last Supper, or at night before he dies, I've told you this so that you might have peace in me. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have conquered the world. Francis Sinclair, some of my favorite examples of this fortitude, this courage to do the hard thing. Francis, who set out on the crusade, a lot of people don't know this part of his life. Uh, you know, the crusades are happening, we're trying to take back the Holy Land, defend the Christians that are there. I've had a hard time over centuries and centuries. And he says, I'm going to win the Crusades, not through weapons, not through military, but through conversion. I'm going to convert the Muslims. <laughs> so he uh, set out to do that. He met the Sultan, and he offered to do all sorts of things to prove that he's a prophet of the true God. And the Sultan was, uh, didn't really convert or anything, but he was so impressed that he gave the Franciscans care of the holy sites ever since. So for 800 years, you go to the holy sites in Jerusalem, you're going to find the Franciscans there. And St. Clair, you know, her monastery was under attack by the Saracens. Um, Muslim mercenaries brought into Europe to do all sorts of things. She gets the Eucharist. She gets a monstrance. She stands out the door of the gate of Assisi and they flee in terror and never and leave Assisi safe. And so again, fortitude of the saints, this Christian strength uh, to do the hard thing. So uh, what, how has the church changed because of that? Or how has the war changed? Uh, warfare, you know, we could talk about just war theory. There's this, there's this video on the Crusades. I, sh I show the kids this. Uh, John Green is not a Christian YouTuber. You know, he's, he's very secular. But he's very balanced, and so I do think it's, it's kind of a neat video. Plus, Crash Course of History is just a great, great little series. Uh, he's very balanced at what the Crusades were. Like, they really were a pilgrimage. These people really were going on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and they were going to defend themselves against an oppressor that had been there for a long time, that was oppressing the Christian people that were there before them, and they had no sort of alternative motives to sort of take the land, take the resources. Now, in later crusades, there were some of those things happening. Those were later crusades, again, when people start to try to manipulate what's already happening. In the early crusades, it was just out of almost pure love that these people were going on these journeys of faith. Uh, the Inquisition as well. You know, we always hear of the Inquisition, you know, and like the torture and death part of it. But what people don't know, it's, it's actually kind of the backbone, kind of the sources of sort of 
modern court proceedings of like gathering witnesses and cross-referencing people and having the right to defend yourself in court and all these different things that weren't practiced before the Inquisition. And not to mention that they made great improvements on secular courts and was, all, was protecting libel and slander against God. You know, people don't think about that, that God as a juridical person uh, deserves the same protections we give to any other citizen, including this right to not be slandered or libeled against. So, you know, there's so much more of the Inquisition. Yes, there were abuses and all that um, to talk about, but sometimes people forget that it honestly was an improvement <laughs> to a lot that was going on. And, you know, uh, John Green even mentions, I think, the Black Legend, or maybe in some other books, that's been sort of shown that kind of in a later period, during the Protestant Re Reformation especially, there became this anti-Catholic propaganda, using the Crusades, using the Inquisition as a way to show that, oh, those Catholics, they're barbaric people. So a lot of those legends been debunked. So you don't have to be so ashamed of what the church did in those moments. Uh, rather, just we're trying to recognize the church has something to give the culture. Uh, the last one is temperance. Temperance is that self-control to be rid of a lesser good, to pursue something greater. So kind of the example of the rich young man, Jesus said, give what you have to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. That's temperance in a nutshell, you know, to, to give away a lesser good, to get something even greater. So just the whole religious life is what I used as an example, Saints Benedict and Scholastica, as this whole system for, you know, giving away your own life to cure an even greater life in heaven. Um, no time for Canticle of Leibowitz. That's okay. Next slide. Um, instead, I, I go back retaining culture and knowledge, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience that the, the monks did uh, was responsible for the evangelization of Europe. These peoples coming in, they were so impressed by self-control. Again, letter to Diognetus that Christians had a sort of self-control that not many other people in the society had that showed them that there might be something more to their life than meets the eye. There might be a happiness there that's more secure. You know, you can run with your passions all you want, but eventually they kind of run out and fizzle and die, and people know that. But these people had a sort of lasting happiness that didn't depend on riches. It didn't depend on pleasure. It didn't depend on power. All those things were given up. It, it depended on something even greater than that. And then also this temperance, this virtue of temperance was what I call responsible for beauty beyond imagining. When you're able to have self-control of those lower passions, you're able to build incredible things. You think about the, all the cathedrals and the music and the painting and the arts that rose up in the Christian era. A lot of those things are because people are willing to spend their whole lives dedicated to these things. They have that temperance, that virtue, to do away with those lesser goods in pursuit of a higher beauty. They're able to build cathedrals when they know that they're never going to live to see these things completed. You know, it's going to be 200 years. It's going to be their great, great, great grandchildren who actually live to see this, and yet they have the temperance to say, I still want to work on this. You know, it's still something worth giving my life for. So when you have temperance, the deeper desires of humanity for goodness, truth, and beauty 
can kind of shine forth. And that's why so much of the Christian era is littered with all these uh, beautiful things. Because that's what comes out when you have that sort of self-control. So friends, we went <laughs> uh, long into the night without hot chocolate. Hopefully there was something here that's worth holding on to. I did give a couple more resources. I actually, uh, podcasts are kind of where I learn a lot from, so that's what I have to give you. So a couple shows on podcasts. If you want to listen, you know, I like listening better than reading anyway, uh, to some more on just what the church did in the world. Um, so a couple of those from the Thomistic Institute. Bishop Conley recommended this book to all the priests in the eye of the storm, a biography of St. Gregory the Great. And so I think it's going to end up in our library eventually. Um, but a great book, it, you know, Fall of Rome time. Kind of reminds us of our time, day and age right now. So to see St. Gregory act in those, um, it's pretty remarkable. And then, of course, I gave you your homework, Gaudium, it's best <laughs> to watch. So um, are there any just, you know, final questions on how to learn more or like where to go from here? Yes, Barb? Leibowitz? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, go back a sli three slides. Go back three slides. I know. Right there. Okay. Um, there, <laughs> what the story goes, there was an American pilot in World War II who was responsible for a bombing mission in Italy that ended up destroying Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino is where Benedict and Scholastica are buried. They're still buried there. They were far enough underground. They rebuilt it. But after the war, he sort of looked into like what he did. You know, he found out it was a big oopsie. They thought the Nazis were there. They weren't. So he's like, oh, what did I destroy there? Found out it was this place of St. Benedict. It sort of led to his conversion and looking into what the monks did to preserve culture. So he ended up writing this novel, Canticle of Leibowitz, and it's hilarious because it's, uh, it's these monks that live in a post-nuclear apocalypse, so kind of science fiction-y, where they're preserving culture, and they're recording things. They don't even know what they're recording, but they know it's truth. They know it's worth passing on. Again, they're kind of doing the same thing the monks did after the fall of Rome, only this time they're passing on, like, circuit boards and, like, instructions for coffee makers and kind of silly stuff like that. But um, so it's, it's kind of a novel. Um, so if you want a little lighter reading, well, it's, it's kind of dark sometimes too, but it's kind of a fun thing to think about. Like, this is what the monks did. That's Canticle of Leibowitz. And our seminary put it on as a play. Because it's hard to find plays where there's not many women roles. You know, and this is kind of one of them because they're all monks. <laughs> so we could do it. So I was the brother that was against all this new technology. Yeah, I was very backwards. It's fine. Well, brethren, yes, it's been a good night. Um, I, I love learning this. Oh, yeah, thank you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, the saints, lives of the saints are so worth learning. Um, history of the church, so worth learning. Again, there's there's plenty of Judases out there, but for every Judas, you know, there's, there's a Mary Magdalene, there's, there's a Mary, there's a Simon Peter. So 
Not to worry about that stuff. Know that the church is the soul of the world. We're on our way to Jesus. Christ will be king. That's what we celebrate this Sunday. So let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, reign in our hearts, reign in our families, and in our friends, reign in our communities. May you reign forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.